Well, welcome back. And this week we are we've got a lot to cover. And before we dive right in, I'm going to ask Brad to open us in a word of prayer. I will. Father, we are so grateful for our heritage. Um, Lord, as is true in any family, uh, there are parts of our uh, heritage, our history that we would just as soon uh, keep quiet. This is one of those times today when we talk about some difficult days. In fact, uh, days known as the Dark Ages. We pray that you would teach us, Lord, uh, teach us from our mistakes, teach us also uh, from the good that we find scattered throughout this thousand year period, or maybe four or five hundred of which we will consider today. We pray your blessings on our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brad. And uh, again, this uh, for these several weeks, uh, we're in the Middle Ages, and uh, we're covering nearly a thousand years over this this period. And so we're going to be moving a little bit forward and a little bit back in our, our timeline, just so we can cover some highlights and events. Uh, we're not going to get bogged down so much in the details of uh, historical events in, in, in the chronology here, but we want to keep it a, a large picture. So we'll be covering about 600 years from uh, the birth and expansion of Islam and um, in the Crusades, which is a response to the Islam, the militant Islamic uh, world. And then uh, a third point that happens right around uh, the close of the, or the mid 11th century, and that's going to be a great rift, uh, a schism between the East and West Church. Uh, so, why don't we start with Islam? I'm going to guess that some of you never thought about Islam until about 12 years ago. Uh, on September 11th, 2001, uh, the flight of the planes into the Twin Towers and into the Pentagon's forever, Pentagon forever changed your thinking about Islam, you at that time began to hear the term radical Islam. Well, actually, uh, Islamists have sought to take over the world since almost the beginning days. Um, Muhammad was a good man, the guy who, who, who started, the man who is responsible for the beginning of the rise of Islam. Uh, in the early 600s, when he was about 40 years old, Muhammad uh, had been impressed, let me say before we get to what happened at age 40, Muhammad had been quite impressed with the morality of the Jews, the, the monotheism of the Jews, and some of the ideas of Christians. He was disgusted with the paganism and the, and, and the debauchery that, that generally uh, came along with paganism, uh, accompanied paganism in those days. And so... In, in, in 610, when he was 40 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, Muhammad was meditating in a cave and he had some rather significant visions, didn't he, Neil? He sure did. And, and before we get too far into very many of Muhammad's details, we want to reiterate that uh, we're not um, historical experts. Oh, yes. And we're not Islamic experts, but we do want to relate to you the truth as as we know it and have discovered it. And uh, Muhammad, it's interesting to see what we know before um, Muhammad's military exploits and afterward it almost seems like two different personalities. Yes. It sort of evolved. Yes. His, his thinking about 
uh, his the particular religion that he was founding because he felt that it had come directly from God sort of evolved. He, he seemed very peaceful and timid earlier on. Yes, he did. Un, until the ball started rolling and we see more of an, an aggressive manner. And uh, yeah, so we can see that uh, Muhammad was familiar with Christianity and and uh, Judaism on a surface level, but didn't really know very much because uh, some of the things that he would say about Jesus later on contradicted what he thought about early Jesus yeah. earlier on. Yeah, in fact, Muhammad had a, 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 a an Ebionite wife. I started to say Christian. I would not say the Ebionites were Christians because they didn't believe in the deity of Christ. They didn't believe in his resurrection. Again, because they were Jewish Christians, uh, but not the kind that we see in the Bible, in the book of Acts, and right. uh, those those men and women who believed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. The Ebionites uh, wanted to maintain their monothe- monotheism, so they said Jesus was uh, an agent of God, but not God himself. Um, and Muhammad, after meditating, and he, and he sees this vision that some people think was a comet, uh, he is convinced that, well, he's actually not convinced that he's seen the vision. Yeah, but he confused. goes home and tells his wife, who in turn says, When in doubt, ask your wife. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's it. So Khadija, his wife, his, his older wife, uh, was the one to convince him that this was a message from God. It, it has to be an angel. And from that point forward, he becomes convinced that this vision that he saw uh, was the angel Gabriel. And so he returns to his cave uh, to meditate and there receives further uh, revelation. I, I don't know how many, um, but it, it may continue on for a couple of years, uh, receiving uh, recitations. And, and that's what um, the angel told him to do is recite. Uh, and, and that's why if you read the Quran in English, you're not in the in the Muslim's mind. You're not truly reading the Quran no. because you can only read it in the native uh, Arabic tongue. In, in fact, a lot of scholars will tell you that the Quran is beautiful in the a- mm. Arabic uh, language. It's very poetic, but it does not translate well at all. Um, we, we'll talk about the five pillars of Islam a little bit later. What the the, the five bases for the Muslim religion or the five foundational truths of Muslim religion. But in these early days, Muhammad uh, sort of had three principles that that were important to him. First of all, God is one. Monotheism. In other words, all the polytheists were wrong. Now, this was a little bit problematic for him because he lived in Mecca, in Arabia. And in Mecca, uh, there was a great deal of pagan worship and a worship of multiple gods. Uh, and and as we saw in Ephesus in the book of Acts, mm-hmm. uh, that was problematic when someone comes along preaching monotheism mm-hmm. because it 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 puts a dent in the business uh, of the day. It, yeah, it doesn't reach just the uh, stepping on the toes of the individual people, but it, it impacts the economy because the economy is built around these, the idol worship. Exactly, and. Uh, that didn't. That just didn't trouble um, uh, uh, Muhammad too much because he said, "Look, judgment is coming on the Arabians and on the world, and we need to be prepared for that." Um, and it, so, economy is not important when you mm-hmm. when you realize that judgment is coming. And also, he said, "But at the same time, um, 
look, with the money that you do have, give to the poor. So three principles uh, that Muhammad very early on established as being important to this new religion. And good principles. Yes, absolutely. We could, as Christians, we could, uh-huh. uh, we could agree with that. And in fact, Jews and Christians both resonated with mm-hmm. some of the things that Muhammad said. Especially the less discerning ones. Now, more discerning ones right. would would recognize that these were good tenets. But um, Muhammad uh, began to say some sort of strange things, and he said some of the some some of the uh, people in Mecca or some of the uh, gods of Mecca were really angels. Yeah, that that was strange to me, and uh, and again. A lot of this material is covered both in Gonzalez and in the Borgman MP3 series. What uh, what hit me was um, that he explained away some of these gods as uh, angels, and then at that point, Jews recognized him for who he was. He's not a monotheist anymore. <laughs> he, he's bringing in other deities, other spirits into his religion, and then uh, and then he says, "Oh, but wait." I, I was wrong with that. Gabriel corrected me. So one revelation offset another revelation. And, and that, I mean, what do we, how do we compare that to say what Moses warned the, the Israelites about how to judge prophets? Exactly. If a prophet, if everything he says doesn't come true, or if he changes course, uh, then he's not who he says that he is. In fact, Muhammad, and, and Muhammad would call these verses, he, the satanic verses, or they would be, come to be known as the satanic verses. Um, this actually has been a, quite a controversy in, in, in recent mm-hmm. years. Um, but, but, um, so it's very interesting that his writings are corrected <laughs> later. You don't see any of that in scripture. What mm-hmm. is written is the word of God. And, and another theme within Islam and what Became what developed into the Quran is that uh, Muhammad saw Judaism as true religion in its infancy, Christianity as true religion in its adolescence, and here we have finally Muhammad with the final revelation, the truest revelation, the unimpeded revelation of God yes. in its adulthood. That <laughs> all the Christian scriptures have been uh, tampered with. It's not true, but what he reveals is truth. Not only what he reveals is truth, but it is the ultimate truth. So that Jesus is not the primary mm. uh, conduit of revelation for God's truth. He is. Yeah. Um, Christians, of course, having a, a great deal of, of trouble with this. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I just want to put, put this in before we keep moving forward. Um this is the same thing that Joseph Smith did uh, quite a few centuries yeah. later with the Book of Mormon. You know, he, he writes things and then he, oh, well, okay, I was mistaken. But now here is the real truth. We have a unified Bible that is inerrant. It, there is no error anywhere in it. It reports error, right. but it does not in any way ever admit that anything was written was wrong. There is a completion. But never, oh, wait a minute, I was wrong about that. Now I have to say this. Right. You know, there's no, no correction. Um, I, I think, too, that uh, with Muhammad as he... Well, I just want to sort of relate it, maybe relate to you some of my personal interactions. I've, I've had the opportunity to go abroad and, and meet several uh, individuals and families uh, of, of Arabia 
and um, Muslims also here in, in America. I'm sure you may have neighbors or coworkers, and this is not to sort of set you against them thinking they're demonic or anything, but that uh, they are people, but they are people with a false religion. They have good morals, morals that as Christians we would agree with and would probably welcome in our society. But when those morals are founded in a in a false religion, a religion that claims truth, claims um, revelation from God, but yet that revelation contradicts what we know to be true in Scripture, they need the gospel just as much as anyone else. Um, they absolutely they do. Um, and one of the things that makes it difficult is the uh, branch of. Islam that is radical uh, and seeks to uh, conquer the world for well all Muslims would like to see that just as all Christians would like to see the world evangelized but man are we going to see even where Christians really uh, go astray when they combine military uh, conquest as a part of their religious beliefs um, Muhammad while he was a relatively moral guy, he had his, his own inconsistencies. The Quran seems to say, or the Quran, we, we could say, uh, either way, you want to pronounce it. The Quran seems to indicate that uh, a, a man can only take four wives. Well, Muhammad had 12, including uh, his sons. He adopted his son's adopted wife. Uh, and and brought her into his harem, and that just was totally against it. But he said he received special revelation from Gabriel that allowed him to do that. Now, that would be convenient if you could get yeah. special revelation to break any rules that you have written down. Well, there's another parallel with, with Mormonism, with uh, wives, taking wives, multiplying wives. That, uh, it's funny how God sends his angels to give special revelation that it's okay. That's right. For the leader to take uh, you know, multiple wives. That's right. Neil, if you get any special revelations, <laughs> I, I, we'll, we'll have to check out. I'll run that by it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that is one of the beautiful things about the, the body of Christ, isn't it? We keep each other in check. Well, um, just quickly, Muhammad's uh, preaching against polytheism got him in trouble with the residents of Mecca who ran him out. He escaped to Medina, uh, where he gained a great deal of uh, audience and favor and began to make a lot of money, and he started raiding some of the yeah. pilgrims uh, on their way to Mecca. And so once again, he got a lot more money and got an army together, a small army, to go in and take Mecca. So here's where his military conquest... If he could have taken Mecca peacefully, mm. who knows what would have happened? Wow, what, what would Islam look like? After that. Wow. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah, we, there's a definite progression between um, Muhammad the proclaimer and Muhammad the, the raider. That that's uh, a far cry from, say, Abraham. Yes. Who yes. Who had a household that could be an army, but yet did not force Jehovah's um, commands on anyone. But here, Muhammad takes his little band uh, who had been following him and. Continues to raid, gather wealth, and with that wealth, uh, hire mercenaries and more people who, if you're going to serve with him, you've got to be part of this religion. And pretty soon they have a final assault. And that becomes why Mecca is their Mecca. 
that's their their center point. And he actually used to um, urge prayers not to Mecca, but towards Jerusalem, because he, again he had a familiarity with Judaism and Christianity, right. and he thought Jerusalem is the holy city. But once the he, Jews rejected him mm-hmm, because of the you know, dabbling with the angels and the polytheism, that uh, the Jews reject him. So he rejects Jerusalem, and he seeks a more militaristic more center for his religion, and that's where Mecca now enters the, the fray as their their focal point. You know, maybe we could say that in, in Scripture we see the development of God's plan. It's just carried out perfectly in time, on time. Um, most all false religions evolve, uh, and they are often shaped by. Uh, cultural events. Now we've talked about culture shaping our theology mm-hmm. and the need for sh- our theology to shape culture, but false religions are just essentially controlled by events and activities that it change people's ways of of, of thinking. Um, Muhammad did not get to enjoy his conquest of Mecca for long. He only lived a couple of years after that. But my goodness, uh, Islam rapidly it grew rapidly within uh, the the area where it it was headquartered in Mecca and then expanded exponentially just real briefly um talk about sunnis and shiites that that developed right yeah. after uh Muhammad died who's going to take up who's going to be the leader of this new religion and this is especially relevant as we think about uh, the new government in Iraq and Afghanistan mm-hmm. talks with um with Iran Persian, they're not Arab, but they're Muslim. Uh, so there's already some strife between the Arab um, nations, and and we we shouldn't think of Islam as being monolithic. It's it's different over here than it is over here. They have differences in theology. They have differences um, on on multiple points. Uh, and when we hear terms Sunni and Shiite, um, yes, they're political. They've been politicalized today, but um, basically, with whatever minor faults they had with one another, one wanted um, any leader who was capable to lead them. That's the Sunnis. The Sunni. Yeah. And the Shia, they want only descend, direct descendants of Muhammad to be their leader. So that's, they, they keep a more conservative uh, leadership. So it's not really... Theology so much as authority. It, it, it is. Now, they would say that this question of authority is a theological issue, of course, and, and we're, we're going to see so much of that uh, in the church as well. Um, tell us about the spread of Islam. I mean, 632, um, Muhammad died. Mm-hmm. But, in, I mean, within 30 years, they've taken over a huge portion of that uh, uh, of, of the world yeah. of that day it, it really did explode across the map and I hope to post a map on the uh, the slideshow for you this week also uh, to show the expansion rapid expansion started centered in in Saudi Arabia um, swung around uh, Palestine and it both went north and south at the same time right this swept up into Asia Minor and in south and west over the north of Africa. So that within a hundred years, say six ten to seven ten, uh, it covered the entire southeast portion of our Mediterranean map. And that's not including Persia and anywhere 
further east that it expanded. One decade after another, you see the, the military lines um, expanding up until they they knock on the door of Constantinople, which of course is the the capital of the Byzantine Empire at this point, and finally their expansion is halted. But on the west side, it continues. It continues, and uh, just tragically, I think we we can say that within about forty fifty years, the all of the areas that had produced people like Tertullian and Cyprian and Athanasius are under Islamic control. Uh, well, then they moved north into Europe, into Spain, uh, and were quite successful there, overtook Spain, and stayed there for a long, long time. And then tried to expand in the 700s uh, into France. And in 732, Charles Martel... We've heard him, uh, we've heard of this man before with the nickname The Hammer, uh, ha- ha- stopped the uh, Islamic expansion in France, in Tours, France. And they, they moved back into Spain and it would be uh, the year 1492 before Christian uh, Nations uh, arranged a marriage that eventually expelled the the, the Islamists, and, and much of their success, I think, came at the at the expense of a splintered Christian world. Not only so sad. religiously splintered, but uh, the tribes and the nations at that point, because of the fall of Rome, there were still splintered people groups all throughout, and there was just no unification in order to repel this. Not just an influx of a new religion, but a very militarized, aggressive religion. But yet, they weren't all always um, suppressing no. or persecuting the Jews or no. the Christians, were they? No, they weren't. Uh, that is extremely interesting. You brought up a point that I had thought about earlier and then didn't include in my notes, but the 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 monophysite uh, controversy. In Egypt, there were a number of believers who said that Jesus is um, is is one both in in, in hum, his human nature and his uh, divine nature are intermingled. Yeah. Well, the Orthodox position is that that Jesus is uh, one person, two natures. Now, that's interesting. Think about that. Jesus is one person, two natures. We talk about the Trinity as three persons, one nature. Mm. Um, so mm-hmm. you get more and more precise in your identification of, uh, of biblical truth. But because of this splinter, the Christians were, were fighting each other. Yeah. And so it was quite easy for Islam to come in and and take over, and and we're going to see the same thing later, some six hundred years later, in, in, in the Constantinople, uh, in that area, uh, where where the Muslims are able to conquer all of that that area because of uh, fighting amongst Christians. Well, we've covered a lot of the the early centuries of, of Islam. Why don't we touch briefly on their five pillars and and maybe how they uh, are even seen today, so we can relate our Christian history, our heritage of this struggle back then, and how we might see it or relate to it today. Uh, you're going to see so many similarities between Islam and 
Judaism, Islam, and, and Christianity. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Now, we obviously w- would, would not have anything to do with that, but we would say there is one God. Mm-hmm. But as we've talked about many times, unless you worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't worship the same God as anybody else. That is the only God we worship. Any other God we consider to be a false God. The God of the Ebionites is false because mm-hmm. he's he is not, not the son. He is not the son. Exactly. And the son is not God. So there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. That's the first pillar. A prayer five times a day facing Mecca. You, you talked about the fact that initially we faced Jerusalem, but now after the Jews don't like us anymore, well, Jerusalem is suspect and, and let's look to Mecca. Um, the, the, the fasting during the month of Ramadan. Ramadan. Now, tell us about that fasting. Sometimes that's uh, fasting. Sometimes that's big time party. <laughs> that's a relative word, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. And and so far we've seen monotheism, one God, prayer, and fasting. Mm-hmm. In one perspective, we can agree with that, but on what they base it, we we must disagree because Allah is a general term meaning God, but their God is not our God. Prayer is great. But when you regiment it that you have it, to do it this time, it's very legal. It starts and it ends, yes. and you've got to, you can't you can't live like that. And, and the same for fasting; they realize you can't live like that. Uh, some areas and some nations are very strict. You you cannot eat during sunup to sundown uh, each day during the month of Ramadan, which is on the the lunar calendar, so it's at a different portion of the year. And and other areas are very more liberal, they're relaxed, and uh, it ends up being a month of feasting. Not during the day, because they still keep the letter of their mouth, but then they'll go over someone else's house, and in, as soon as the sun goes down, it's a barbecue party. <laughs> it, it certainly is. So they, they sort of lose their um, the whole pious environment of, of what the intent actually was. We understand how that goes, though. Mm-hmm. We... we not only recognize it in the Pharisees, we see it in ourselves when we begin to regiment our Christian lives. And, you know, in the same way that we talk about, it, it is impossible to understand Scripture without a system of interpreting Scripture. But every system gets in the way. Uh, and so the be- in the way of truth, ultimate truth, because you cannot contain the truth, biblical truth, in a system. So the best thing to do, rather than rather than just throwing out your system or uh, rather trying to cram everything into your system, is when you come to one of those verses, one of those portions of Scripture, a, a text, a, a truth that just absolutely will not fit, suspend that system long enough to get the truth of what Scripture is saying at that place and then put it right back in place so that you can continue to move. It's the same thing, I would think, with spiritual disciplines. They're very helpful. When you say, I'm going to spend time in the Word every day, I'm going to have a quiet time, I'm going to pray, I'm going to memorize Scripture. But when that becomes the end, then you've lost what you're doing. So occasionally stop and say, I've got to be doing this for the right reason, but then go right back to it. It's the same thing that we saw with Augustine and, and the monks where they recognized their their um, weak areas and they created disciplines around to protect themselves, but then they forced those same protections on, on others. <clears> so <throat> you, you have to have my same weaknesses, so you have to do these same disciplines. And, 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 and they were just 
follow in the footsteps of the Pharisees, even though they were believers. Augustine yeah. and his 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 brothers uh, were believers, but brothers as in spiritual brothers. But nonetheless, uh, it, our default position is legalism. We always move in that direction. Now, some people would seem to move in an opposite direction to to license. Well, let's just quickly the 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 other two um, pillars of Islam are giving of alms and then a, a, a pilgrimage to Mecca once in your life. This again was sort of copying the Jews who felt that a pilgrimage to Jerusalem mm-hmm. once in your life. Not excuse me, not Jews. To Christians who believe that a pilgrimage, well, Jews would believe that too, mm-hmm. uh, but Christians would said, get to Jerusalem if at all possible, at least once in your life. And it was in an odd way. We've talked a little bit about relics. Yeah. Uh, that 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 had the, it was the same principle. If you go to Jerusalem once in your life, there is some spiritual blessing involved, and God, you gain more favor with God in that way. Yeah, I, I think it would be a great visit, but when you put that emphasis on it, it, it actually accomplishes something. Yes. Then you're missing no. the whole point. Uh, in, in fact, I will say that I, I've been to Israel twice back in the early 80s, one year after another. And a year, uh, excuse me, a week in Jerusalem and, and the surrounding area in Israel is easily worth a year of Bible college, maybe worth a year in seminary. So if you can go, if at all possible, go you will benefit greatly. But again, you don't gain anything by way of favor with God. Um, talk about, Neil, this sixth uh, pillar that actually is not called a pillar, but right. it, it is a jihad. And, and they wouldn't name it among their tenets of faith, but it is every good Muslim's um, prerogative is their duty to jihad. And uh, Islam means struggle. I'm sorry, uh, submission. It does, though many people think it means peace. Yeah, when we hear it on the news today, it is the religion of peace. peace. And however, the actual name itself means submission. And the Muslims that I spoke to were were great guys, uh, family. I mean, they're family men. And their interpretation of submission was the inner submission, just like we should and would submit to God. So they submit to God. However, there's a flip side to that, is that in the spread of Islam, it's their duty to make others submit to God, too. Yes. And that can be through uh, convincing them, but typically not. Typically, it's through forcing them. And this is where jihad comes in, and that is struggle. And they would say that it's a inner spiritual struggle, but if that inner spiritual struggle doesn't propagate into my neighbor's, then I'm going to turn it into a physical and militant struggle against you in order to either suppress you, just like they suppress the Jews and the Christians, into a, a secondary or lower class of people where it was difficult to find good jobs or get government positions. Um, or they may take a more aggressive tact and, uh, and conquer your city and kick you out or run you through. <laughs> it, uh, it takes all forms, but... Uh, there's no, there's no question whether jihad is part of the religion. It's whether or not they are a good Muslim. Uh, well, let's just wrap this session up by thinking about uh, what 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 do we make of Islam? First of all, we have to say it's a false religion. Mm-hmm. We've already acknowledged that uh, they think of Jesus as a prophet, not as the Son of God. The, 
God in the flesh, the Messiah. Um, and, and just like any false religion, its adherents need Jesus. And Neil, I think you've already stated that very, very well. Uh, some would say that uh, Islam uh, produces hatred uh, rather than love. Um, and I think before we, uh, it, we, we have to acknowledge that that is absolutely the case in, in, in many instances. But before yeah. we lump all Muslims into that particular mold, we're going to have to take a look in just a few moments about how Christians acted during the mm-hmm. Crusades, which again started with a, a, a good purpose in mind to combat this Islamic uh, takeover of the Christian world and the suppression of the truth of Christ in that world, but how it quickly uh, devolved. It is also, I will say, one of the greatest challenges that we have in missions. I think that Brian Borgman points out the fact that we were caught up with communist and atheist in, in, in the communist part of the world so in a good portion of the 20th century, but Islam has always been our greatest challenge for missions. Communism came and went, and it may come again in, in Eastern Europe. I want to be quick to acknowledge that. But Islam has been here and has been growing ever since the 600s. Continues to grow quickly. Uh, the toughest challenge from its inception to today and looks to be that way for, for quite some time. But when we come back in just a moment, we'll see the Christian's response to Islam. Welcome back to the second segment of our eighth session uh, this segment, we're going to be talking about the Crusades. Uh, it, Crusades were a, a series of military um, events, uh, campaigns instigated by the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and they attempt, it was in an attempt to liberate the Holy Land. There were more factors involved. In fact, we're going to talk about causes and goals here in just a moment. Uh, I would like to say, though, uh, to start with, that these series of military campaigns were not initially known as crusades. Uh, crux, uh, the, the, let me, Latin for cross is crux, and, and the, the name crusades came from that. Um, just briefly, let me talk about the causes of the crusades. First of all, it was a reaction to the conquering hordes of Islam. The Islamists were overrunning all of the areas that had previously been controlled by the church. Jihad was an an aggressive act, and the Crusades were sort of a reaction to that, defensive in nature. When you talk to... Well, at least that was their thinking, defensive. Right, right. When you talk to people today who are antagonistic towards Christianity, they always look back to the Crusades and say, oh, Christianity was horrible. Look what they did during the Crusades. But back then they would have seen it as we're, we're defending our nation, our territory, our heritage, and the lives of our, our neighbors. It was a defensive response, in effect, wasn't it? But it was put on the offensive by marching to the, the Holy Land. It, it, it was, and it was a noble thought uh, initially. Um, but it was complicated by the fact that religion and state mm-hmm. were mixed. Church and state were mixed. We've talked about this before. We're going to talk about it over and over and over again. The difficulty of, of mixing church and state. Um, so it was a reaction uh, to Islam and to jihad. Uh, it was also uh, uh, 
found fertile soil in the minds of Europeans because of the ill treatment of pilgrims to the Holy Land. Uh, a lot of times when pilgrims would go, uh, some of the radical Islamists would uh, mistreat them and in fact took some and sold them as slaves. And the ones who returned to Europe told the stories and it created outrage. Remember, you have talked about in the prior segment that Islam was not always oppressive and that they allowed Christians to practice their religion as long as they did not try to proselyte. Mm -hmm. And so for a good while, pilgrims were allowed to make that journey to Christian pilgrims to uh, Jerusalem. But now here somewhere in the late 10th century, early 11th century, they're starting to find that they are mistreated at the hands of the Muslims. Third, uh, the appeal of the Greek emperor to assist him in his defense of war against the Turks. We're going to, in this segment, we're going to talk about events that happened over a period of two, three hundred years, two, two hundred fifty years, essentially. And we're not going to always put dates to these times because it would just be too easy to get lost in the over, in the avalanche of, of information. So that was some of the causes and the goals relate to those. But then some other goals were added to that. Sure. And, um, and whether the causes or goals or effects of it, um, this is not simple stuff. So uh, what we're going over is a complete overview of very complicated issues. And I think we think of history as being black and white. This was good. This was bad. This is what happened. And it becomes boring. Or on the other extreme, you think about, all the complex issues, I don't want to think about it, so I'm just going to tune out. Yes. So this is sort of up there where there are complex issues of theology, uh, politics, inner uh, nations, um, talks between uh, struggling nations and different religions. Uh, and then we get down to the people. There are individual people where, it's, especially in Spain, it did not look so black and white because uh, Christians and, and Muslims were intermarried. And Christians were sometimes conspiring with Muslims to to battle back and forth. It's very confusing, so we're going to keep this very uh, as simple as we can. And some of those goals that uh, the Pope or the popes and uh, noblemen had during the Crusades was to relieve the um, the dwellers of the Holy Land, those within Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, of the, the persecution of of Islam. But it was also an, an effort, uh, an olive branch, so to speak, uh, between the East and the West Church, because again, there were a lot of factions within the church. Uh, we think about uh, theological camps of the Monophysites and, and the Nestorians still had pockets here and there. And then um, we have the Greek-speaking East with the Latin-speaking West, and um, we'll cover here in a few minutes that they officially became two separate churches but there were hopes of reuniting. And um, when the Eastern Emperor asked for troops to augment, uh, they, instead of getting troops, they found an army. And uh, so started the, the First Crusade. And then, in addition, it was to, again, repel and set up defensive borders to stop the expanding invasion of, of these uh, Islamic troops. Well, but it got out of hand, didn't it, very quickly. Um, so many good ideas go awry when human nature is involved. A lot of the people who went on these crusades had the best of intentions. In fact, going on a crusade 
uh, uh, it was called taking up your cross, or that was the way it was described. Take up your cross, go. Um, during some of this time period, a very famous uh, Christian leader named Bernard of Clairvaux was quite a persuasive preacher, and mothers would hide their children because they would all be excited about uh, going, first of all, to a monastery and then uh, on a crusade. And so they uh, were a little bit wary of his preaching, but it was so powerful and the cause was so well articulated that many people went. Not everybody that went had noble uh, aspirations, though. They were essentially mercenaries on these and, and that created problems when they got into the to, to the areas, especially areas where they conquered the enemy. Yeah, they were really looking to, to um, relieve the Christians in that area. So they, the idea of going on crusade was very romanticized. It was a noble thing to do. And, and even poor theology got mixed into it that uh, it became... An indulgence, not an indulgence, but a um, a work of penance almost. That uh, if you went on crusade or if you supported yes. those who did, it counted towards your salvation or getting out of purgatory or, or granting you uh, direct access to heaven upon death and bypassing purgatory. So we see good intentions, but mixed with bad theology and and also sinners. Who claim to be Christians? I mean, you got to think this is Roman Catholic Europe of the Middle Ages, where Christianity was the religion, and whether you wanted to be or not, you were Christian. And we have people who uh, who joined the Crusades, who went on these rampages, who identified themselves as Christians, but uh, more than likely, in fact, multitudes of them did not have a relationship with Christ, and that showed up in their behaviors. Both in their um, in their lives in the soldiers' camps, and as well as their actions on the battlefield, and even after taking the the field of battle, when they were able to occupy Jerusalem and, and other towns like that, uh, it, it's a blight on the history of Christianity to see how people who called themselves Christians acted towards their quote unquote enemies. Uh, yes, uh, horrible atrocities committed. If that's if that's not redundant, mm. it, it, it was uh, despicable. Some of the ways that um, that Christians or those who call themselves Christians acted in the name of Christ. Um, there were five crusades uh, spread out over this two hundred year period, uh, almost two hundred year period. Uh, we're not going to talk about all the crusades, but Neil, you have a particular. Uh, uh, Connection to the Third Crusade. I do. Yeah, the first was in response to uh, the Eastern Emperor. The second was sort of a flop, and the third was upon notice that uh, Jerusalem had fallen. They didn't need anybody to raise an army because once the news spread, they wanted to go. And uh, it's it's quite interesting for me at this era of time that I can actually trace the Manning lineage back to uh, the Third Crusade. The grandson of the earliest Manning that I have found actually marched with King Richard the Lionhearted and was knighted on the battlefield. So I think that's very cool. And hopefully one day I'll be able to, to see him in heaven and, and recount how far back you know, our Christian heritage really does go. It, uh, Richard was a good man uh, who also committed atrocities. 
I believe, 2,700 people who had not paid a particular full ransom. W- right. Uh, it, it, it just or, in or cold tax. blood, murdered in cold blood. Mm. Yeah, a, a tax that, that was not paid. And what what a sad time. And in fact, uh, the two main effects of the crusade is uh, are that the division between East and West churches was greatly widened. And we're going to see why in just a moment. But I think the second one is so sad. It, it increased and deepened the hatred of Muslims toward Christians. Um, many crusaders were pious and honorable, but many, as we said, were self, very self-serving. And as you have already mentioned, when people think about Christians, uh, when they hear of Christians, they say, well, what about the Crusades? All of the, the noble intentions just kind of melt into the morass of the of the mistakes that were made uh, during that time. I just want to plug in here too. Um, if you have conversations with with Muslims, um, and, and I'm trying to think back to my conversations, I don't think the Crusades ever entered the the conversation. So so don't jump to the conclusion that you're not speaking to an individual. You're speaking to you know, a category. You gotta talk to the individual as a person. They're gonna have their own concerns. They're gonna have their own life and influences that affect what they think of, of Christ and Christianity. Um, but we will have to answer at some point, what about the Crusades? And yes, because in fact, they don't think of you as an individual. They think of you in a category, as a category. You're a and Christian. You're one of them. You're one of them. In fact, uh, many Arabs and Turks today think of all Christians in the in, in the light of the Crusades, and 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 so we have to work to overcome uh, their perception of us as being haters of of Muslims. So I guess our, our two answers to that would be: one, it was a defensive maneuver, and and two, those atrocities are not following in line with with biblical Orthodox Christianity. It is is aberrant. We don't want anything to do with it. So why don't we move along to one of the precursors to the the uh, Crusades, and that is the rift that was created from East and West. The Crusades wanted one of their goals was to reunite them, but what was the cause that separated them? Was it an overnight thing, and and where are we at this point? No, absolutely not. Uh, we saw these divisions. Uh, very early on, we we uh, see that there was a division uh, between East and West because of language, because of culture. There were a lot of other reasons. One historian has actually said that the East and West did not understand one another because they did not understand one another. Uh, they were uh, divided along so many lines. Um, the seeds of schism, and we refer to it as a schism because it was just an absolute mm-hmm. break. It wasn't just differences a- after a certain point was reached. It was a, a, a break. They anathematized one another. Yes, uh, exactly. So they, they, they brought down heavenly curses, godly mm-hmm. curses on one another. Well, think about some of the differences. Uh, early on, the West did not uh, allow their priests to marry. The East did prior to ordination. If you were ordained 
Uh, and you, you, if you were married, you could be ordained. If you were ordained, you couldn't marry after that. The West held threefold immersion and effusion, which is pouring as a, as valid modes of baptism. The East said, no, only the threefold immersion in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are valid. Uh, in the West, believers could be punished in purgatory. The East said, well, no. No, uh, we, we may be delayed getting into heaven, I guess, in some sort of soul sleep. I don't know about that for sure, but there may be a delay getting into heaven, but there's no punishment in purgatory. Um, so, uh, other differences early on, uh, Neil, uh, in, in between East and West. Yeah, I, I think it was noted in, in the MP3 series that, um, no churches are so similar yet so antagonistic against each other. And those roots of antagonism go, go way back. Um, one midpoint I'm thinking of is the icons or iconoclastic, um, controversies where, uh, the, the West wanted to bring, bring in statues and relics and icons in order to, uh, stir emotions and ideas of, of worship where the East said, no, we don't want any part of that. You can have them. Just don't bring them into the service and, and that continued to be uh, a point of strife. And another one I want to spend a couple minutes on. Did you want to? I just wanted to that? say uh, we mentioned last time John of Damascus, who mm. was in the East, was a Nicene, uh, was yeah. a was a Western believer though. Mm. Uh, listen, the East want they want to claim Nicaea is much or more so than the West. So I shouldn't say mm. he was he was a Nicene Christian, but he was a Western Christian in the East saying that. Uh, uh, icons um, are to the illiterate what scriptures are to those yeah. who can read. It's amazing to, to put it on the same level as scripture. Yes. And, and it is good to point out that um, the Greek-speaking Eastern Church had local churches within the West, within Italy, and the West had Latin-speaking or, or yes. Catholic churches in the East. So, again, it's not, it's not as simple as we wanted to make it out. Well, uh, another early contention that I would like to spend a couple minutes on, if you want, Brad, is is a clause that was added to the Nicene Creed. It's the key. It's the key component of uh, of, of, of separation. And, and it comes down to one word that was added that the, the Roman Catholic, the Latin West, added um, without the presence or approval of uh, Eastern bishops and priests, and they got a little ticked about it. And I don't know that it's so much about the theology of the statement as it is they didn't have any representation. They weren't asked before an ecumenical creed was was edited. Yes, uh, in Nicaea, all the way back in, in 325, um, the Holy Spirit is just mentioned. He's it just we believe in the Holy Spirit that he's part of the Trinity essentially and and it was a very brief mention. Well, through that crucial fourth century, the 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 doctrine of the Trinity developed to, to where that in three twenty uh, three eighty one in Constantinople, which we've also talked about, where the three Cappadocians who were Greek uh, from the East said that the that the Spirit proceeds. From the Father, mm -hmm. they were everybody was fine with that. Well, um, uh, in, in in Chalcedon, in fact, in in 451, where the final doctrine of Trinity was was affirmed by by all an ecumenical council, um, 
then uh, it, it was said that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father again. So it just affirmed what was said at Chalcedon. But then, I believe it was at 589, I think is what it's, it, my notes say. I think that was right. In Toledo, which was, I believe, Spain. In Spain. Spain. Um, the West held a synod and the East were not invited. And, and so they synod, added, yes, a synod. Is a local council gathering rather than a, an ecumenical council, which would have been represented by, by everyone. Yeah, and they said uh, that the Father proceeds not, or the Holy Spirit proceeds not only from the Father, but also from the Son. Not only does the Father send the Spirit, but the Son sends the Spirit. Um, and, and the East complained about that, but the West said no big deal because authority resides in Rome. That's right. Well, they didn't acknowledge that in the East. Uh, like you say, they're very upset because they were not invited. Although it, it was a belief, it was really uh, exacerbated by this exclusion right. of the East. Right, because it wasn't a new idea, uh, even as far back as Augustine, who shortly after um, uh, Constantinople introduced, or was one who introduced the idea of the filioque clause, which which simply means and the Son, so the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So that idea, that clause has been with the church for centuries, but then when the West decides to do that without representation from the East, that exacerbates already um, feelings of contention with uh, icons and and the primacy of Rome versus Constantinople. And you have all these different things playing into the politics of the church, where there should be no politics of the church. And again, the schism wasn't a one-night deal. It didn't just happen. There were flare-ups that continued to get worse and worse. It would subside for a few years, for a few decades, and then boom, it would flare up again. And uh, finally, uh, around, I believe it's 1024, in the middle of the 11th century, uh, the East said, we can't take it. And you can read for yourselves the, the details uh, of the Photian schism uh, happened just before that, and and finally, where the the East said, you can't bring this here and and expect us to be subservient to you. We're not going along with this, so we're going to anathematize. We're going to separate you from the true church in the West. They were okay with that. They said, you know what? We're going to separate you from the church because we're right <laughs> from and the true wrong. church. <laughs> they both both sides felt like this was the true church. Were there believers in both? I think we have to conclude both then and now, no matter what name is on the doorpost, there can be true believers in the church, in the East, in the West. And, and today we have um, Eastern Greek Orthodox, we have Roman Catholic, we have Protestant, we have um, Pentecostal, we have all these different uh, flavors of Christianity. And... Christ's body is not divided, although men may divide. We have dividing lines, but I think he has his remnant throughout the world, and it's not because of the churches or their teachings, but I think it's despite the teachings of the churches. Yes, um, we're going to find uh, in the 11th century in particular uh, just some remarkable uh, theologians and men. So we, yes, we conclude not only were there believers in both churches then, but as you say, now there are believers to be found all through Christendom. 
Um, one last thing. Really, this is just sort of wrapping up. It, it's just going back and hitting one thing. The Crusades played a part in this split, did, did they not? It, it certainly did. Um, even after the schism, the, the official huge break that separated into two churches in 1054, not, not even 50 years later, the Crusades began. And it was, again, an olive branch that the Eastern Emperor was asking for assistance uh, basically from the, the Western Pope. Even though the Holy Roman Empire was in existence at that point, they understood that the Pope had the power uh, both of the church and the troops of the state. And uh, the, the Western troops did not help the cause of unification, did they? they no. Um, I can't remember no. which crusade, second or third, or yes. fourth even. Uh, so much so that in, in certain places of the world where the crusades were actually occurring, that the Eastern, um, the Eastern troops would fight with the Muslims against the Western troops because yeah. the Muslims were far more tolerant than the Western uh, troops. I say that, that, that the Crusades played into it, but it really it had an effect. They had an effect yeah. on deepening the split and making reconciliation almost impossible. Because uh, the Roman troops actually conquered Constantinople and they held it for, for I believe, nearly a hundred years before the, the Greeks were able to, again, retake their own city. And uh, there was an attempt shortly after that at, uh, at a church unification, but the people were so uh, upset and angry with, uh, with Rome at that point, there was no, no hope of going back. Well, uh, a lot of information, and some of it I'm certain confusing, and uh, we have attempted to muddy the waters for you, and I think we've been quite successful. Um, I, I do... I have to affirm that all history uh, is important because it lays, it begins to, what what we're seeing in this period is beginning to stir uh, a, a deepening desire in the hearts of people for a relationship with God that is pure and that is biblical in nature. And we're going to see some movement in that direction with some of these great theologians. But this uh, desire for Pure religion, pure Christianity is going to build until it becomes a tidal wave in the 16th century. So uh, next week we will see you here at Grace Community Church and we're going to be talking about Celtic Christianity which is a bright spot in, uh, or much of it is bright uh, in the, this particular time period and then we're also going, going to be taking a lot of questions and Looking forward to the wrapping up of our class over the next few weeks.